Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. During many of our shows, we discuss current racial disparities in segments of our society, from education to incarceration to housing to health. And despite the efforts by many to bury the uncomfortable racist history of this country, our society cannot fully address the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow, and state-sponsored discrimination without knowing the history, understanding its impact on the present, and taking tangible steps to atone for the injuries suffered. And a major area of race disparity is well. Indeed, poor education, high incarceration, limited housing, and poor health outcomes are all exacerbated by the racial wealth gap in this country, a gap that is widening amid the current COVID-19 pandemic. A 2019 study by the Brookings Institute found that the median white household had 7.8 times the wealth of the typical black household. Like the other areas where we see racial disparity, to fully understand the current racial wealth gap, we need to understand the role racist economic policies have played throughout our country's history. Only when there is comprehensive understanding of the history and current problems can there be a solution to atone for the economic injuries that are still being suffered by Black Americans. And the only real way to redress this economic injury is through reparations. A few months ago, we talked about the racial wealth gap in reparations. And on tonight's show, we continue that discussion with the authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, William Sandy Darity and A. Kirsten Mullen. Sandy Darity is an economist and the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics at, at Duke University. And, and A. Kirsten Mullen is a writer, folklorist, museum consultant, and lecturer whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. Not only are our guests brilliant scholars, they are also married. Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen, thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having us. So we'd like to first start with talking with you about your book, which is again, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. So first, why was it important for you to write this book? I think we, we, we wanted to do two, a couple of things. One was to Prevent, to present an answer, a response to people who would say, well, you know, why is this being talked about at all? Um, and, you know, so many misperceptions that we were hearing about our nation's history and uh, misperceptions about 
um, the racial wealth gap, its existence, the size of it, um, the cause of it. Um, and we also just, you know, wanted to, you know, have kind of a compendium that, you know, people could refer to that was both grounded in history, but also um, research and studies, you know, that are focusing on these, these questions. Um, but, but you know, you know so we're, we're both sort of as, uh, asking questions, but also answering some at the same time that we were hearing over and over again. I think that one of the, uh, the issues that people frequently have raised about reparations, particularly individuals who say that they are sympathetic to the idea is that, uh, you know, that there's no, no feasible way to actually do this. And so uh, the final chapter of our book is devoted to trying to sketch a plan for how you might ex actually execute a, a, a reparations project for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Um, also, as Kirsten mentioned, there's a number of standard criticisms, questions, and complaints that people frequently invoke. And so we thought it would be helpful to have a book that addressed those, those complaints. And so um, I think in the 12th chapter, we talk about a series of the standard arguments that are made against reparations for black American descendants of US slavery. And we try to provide responses. Uh, so I think we were thinking our book might actually trigger a renewed conversation about reparations in the United States. Um, we were hoping that it might do that, but uh, much to our surprise, uh, by the time the book came out, there was a really robust conversation about reparations that was already taking place. And so our book came out in a very different climate from the one that we anticipated uh, when we first started working on it. Right, it took us 10 years to write this book. <laughs> so, so the landscape has changed quite a bit uh, in that period. Uh, but I want to say too, um, you know, we wanted to help, you know, uh, Americans understand how we got to here. You know, there was a, a general perception that, you know, all of the difficulties that black Americans are having are of their own making. And, you know, we knew from personal experience that, that wasn't the case, but it was very important to us to uh, identify the research that confirms, in fact, that what uh, Black American sense of U.S. slavery have been living is a consequence of specific directives made by the federal government, um, you know, from the beginning of the, the founding of the nation. The racial wealth gap, which is uh, is the primary focus of our thinking about what a reparations plan needs to address, uh, is is actually a product of federal policies, uh, policies that built white wealth, and policies that denied uh, black households the capacity to accumulate wealth. Uh, so. Uh, as a consequence, our thinking is that federal policy must be mobilized for the purposes of correcting that disparity in wealth. You know, you, you say uh, 10 years ago uh, that the uh, environment uh, for this discussion was limited. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, talk about it other than within, uh, I guess, what is called radical African-American uh, 
community. Uh, today, uh, that uh, topic is uh, widely discussed. Can you talk about what has happened in 10 years uh, that uh, has changed the environment and has that change been for the, the better or for the worse? I would say that there have been cycles. The conversation has been happening ever since the first uh, kidnapped African was brought to this country. Um, you know, white people were the first abolitionists uh, constantly trying to liberate themselves, trying to figure out how to get paid for the work that was stolen, the lives that were stolen from them. Um, and you know, you had people uh, very early, like Callie Guy House, you know, who was advocating for pensions for uh, the Black uh, Union soldiers, uh, the veterans of the war. Uh, but you know, there's this long history. pensions for the formerly yeah, for enslaved. enslaved as well. Yeah. Uh, but you have this long history of uh, you know uh, discourse within the Black community about reparations. That you know what had been done to these ancestors was wrong and that the federal government should be made to pay uh, to pay for its actions or immoral acts of enslaving people. Um, but when you come up all the way to you know, the most recent century, um, you had uh, you know, more conversations about this you know, brought on both by the UN, you know, talking about you know, reparations around the world, but also um, you may recall um, uh, David Horowitz, the uh, you know, public, public spokesperson who uh, published uh, full page ads in about a dozen college uh, newspapers uh, with a title, very provocative title, you know, like you know, reparations is a horrible thing, and it's really, you know, it's really awful. You know, it's, it shouldn't happen, and it would really be a terrible thing for black people. Christian, Christian reasons why. And you know, he argued that slavery was a good thing, you know, for black people. And that, you know, I, I, I used to wonder, you know, is he really um, pro reparations because he he introduced the the conversation to a new generation of people. And, uh, but that, those conversations kind of petered out. Um, and then right before 9-11, there was another uh, groundswell and uh, a meeting was to take place in South Africa. Okay. And then 9-11 uh, happened. And, you know, that pushed all conversations off, the, you know, off the table. And, um, and I guess the next, you know, so there were, there were moments when we would receive invitations mostly uh, by colleges and universities to you know, sit on panels and, and, and discuss reparations and redress and commissions around the world. But those were, um, you know, somewhat insular, I would say, and, you know, did not get a lot of press. Um, certainly the conversation was continuing and evolving, but it was not the big sort of splash kind of conversations that people are having now. Um, and then that brings us up to, you know, Sandy having given a talk at Duke around 2000, what, on reparations, when um, uh, a representative of UNC Press you know, came up to him and said, you know, this should be a book. You need to, to write a book about this. And um, it was somewhere around 2011. Or so. yeah. Okay, 10 or 11. And, um, and he said, yes, I'll do that. And, um, and that was when we. And I said I'd like to write the book with Carson Mullen, and uh, so that was that was the beginning of the process. 
Uh, I, I'd say that, you know, there was, there, there's been sustained attention to reparations within the circles that Irv is talking about, uh, kind of more radical circles in the black community. Um, maybe circles that are not necessarily best characterized as being radical, but more appropriately as Pan-Africanist. Uh, but there, there's been kind of a sustained conversation there, um, where, uh, whereas there has not been much of a national conversation. Uh, the, the national conversation that was flowering at the beginning of this century was cut off by uh, by, by the events of 911. And then I think that in 2014 or so, Tanasi Coates brings out this article in the- Atlantic cover story. Yeah, called The Case for Reparations. And, and that, that sparks uh, some renewed conversation. But again, that seems to have petered out and nothing really, really changes until 2019. Yeah. And I think, um, and when did, when did Conyers pass? Did he pass in 2019? Yes, I think so. It may be that his, you know, his passing, um, and Conyers, of course, is the person who introduced uh, HR 40 legislation calling for a reparations study commission uh, in initially in, in 1989, and then reintroducing it every year, you know, for the next 29 years, uh, but unsuccessfully. But yes, um, you know, when that article came out in Atlantic, a lot of people, you know, were again talking, but there was not, there was no substantive, you know, development in terms of organization or what needs to be done. Um, you know, the Black Caucus wasn't having, you know, hearings. Um, you know, it was just, you know, people having conversations in their own communities for the most part. And then uh, fast forward to January, 2019, when Marianne Williamson, uh, in her bid for President of the United States, advocated for a national program of reparations. And she asked us to join her in a town hall in Charleston, uh, which we joined virtually. And, um, but she's the first you know, presidential candidate who said you know, that the federal government owes a debt to African-American citizens of US slavery, and it needs to be paid. Now, the amount of money that she thought should be paid was was woefully low. I think at the highest, maybe five hundred billion dollars yeah, is what yeah, she proposed. Was a, um, and we told her so. <laughs> but um, the fact that she even broached the subject, you know, just that she was willing to to hold that hot that political hot potato, you know, for a few, a few minutes, um, um, you know, uh, I think that influenced at least Julian Castro and Tom Steyer. To also uh, say that you know a reparations program would be part of their platforms as well, even though neither of them articulated you know the specifics. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking this hour to the authors of the new book, From Here to Equality: Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. The authors are. 
Sandy Darity, who is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics at Duke University, and Kirsten Mullen, who is a writer, folklorist, museum consultant, and lecturer whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Hannah Gaines, and I'm a current senior at North Carolina Central University, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. The event that we are highlighting is the Black Farmers Market. This event is going on now and doesn't end until December 12th. It's from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Golden Belt. This was a great opportunity to not only get local products, but also an amazing way to support Black-owned businesses. You can learn more about this event by visiting www.durhamcommunityengagement.org events. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Kirsten Mullen, who is a writer, folklorist, museum consultant, and lecturer, whose work focuses on race, art, history, and politics, and Sandy Darity, the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics at Duke University. And they are the authors of a recent book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Uh, right before the break, the two of you were sharing with us what well, you were explaining that interest in reparations uh, comes in cycles. And, and there was a, uh, some interest when ta Coates wrote his uh, Atlantic piece in 2014, uh, there was renewed interest in 2019 when we had presidential candidates talking about and acknowledging the need for reparations. Um, your book came out in 2020. Um, Sandy, I think you had uh, something that you wanted to add to that discussion, so I'll turn it over to you. I was going to talk about uh, the year 2020, which is an extraordinary year, uh, largely for negative reasons, um, but the combination of the pandemic and then uh, a series of highly visible, highly recognized instances of uh, police murders of, of black people uh, in, in particular, the murder of George Floyd uh, triggered an outcry, an international outcry that I think uh, had the effect of reinforcing uh, an accelerating conversation about reparations. Uh, there also had been uh, a growth in attention to reparations that was quite per pervasive in the social media world as well. Uh, and so I think the combination of those factors plus the reaction to the excesses of the Trump presidency uh, all led to a situation in which there was a very different environment concerning the national conversation about reparations 
when our book finally came out than had uh, than had had existed before. You you talked about uh, earlier that uh, the ache reason for reparations is to deal with the uh, wealth gap uh, that uh, exists between uh, whites and uh, people of, of color. Uh, can you just spend a few minutes talking about uh, one of the calls of this uh, wealth gap? And uh, has this gap uh, increased over the years? So, uh so first, I, th I think one proviso, we're not talking, yeah, we're not, we're not talking about uh, the wealth gap between whites and people of color. We're talking specifically about the gap in wealth between whites and black Americans, particularly those who have ancestors who are enslaved in the United States. Uh, and the magnitude of that gap is... Uh, is estimated to be in the vicinity of $840,000 in net worth per average black and white household in the United States. Uh, so, you know, that means that the, uh, that the average white household has $840,000 more in net worth than the average black household. Uh, this corresponds to a situation where Black Americans who have ancestors enslaved in the United States constitute about 12% of the nation's population, but possess less than 2% of the nation's wealth. In contrast, white Americans are somewhere between 70 to 75% of the nation's population, but they possess uh, in excess of 90% of the nation's wealth. And so that's the disparity that we think is a consequence of national policies, um, inclusive of the failure to provide the newly emancipated uh, with the promised 40 acre land grants that were supposed to be given to them as restitution for their years of bondage, uh, inclusive of the Homestead Act land grants that were given to one and a half million white Americans in the amount of 160 acres, uh, inclusive of the discriminatory applications of uh, the practices of the, uh, of the uh, FHA, as well as the, uh, uh, the GI Bill, et cetera, with respect to home ownership and business ownership. So, um, so as a consequence, it's our feeling that that gap in wealth, which is the cumulative intergenerational product of white racism, you know, it's that gap that needs to be addressed by a, a, a policy of reparations. Uh, and that a central aspect of a policy of reparations must be elimination of the racial wealth gap. Now, one of the things that you you mentioned is that you're focusing on the black americans who are who had ancestors who were enslaved can you talk about why that's the focus and and it, of course it seems you know fairly obvious but there are folks that say there are a lot of people who um, have suffered injuries because of the policies of this country what is particularly 
um, significant about Black Americans who are descendants from those who were enslaved in this country. And as you talk about that, could you explain how the wealth of this country is a direct result of the enslavement of people? I'll start with the first part of the the question. Um, At the end of the Civil War, uh, so so not even talking about, you know, black people being, you know, immorally enslaved in this country, Uh, but at the end of the Civil War, um, the federal government promised the recently emancipated black population 40 acre land grants. Um, And this was, you know, property that had formerly been owned by the Confederates. Uh, that had been abandoned by them and confiscated by the federal government, uh, that ran from uh, the South, uh, the Sea Islands of South Carolina, all the way to the St. John's River, the mouth, mouth of St. John's River in Florida. And um, the federal government actually had begun to place blacks on those 40 acre land grants before the war ended. Uh, but, you know, um, some 40,000 uh, families were placed on 40 acre land grants uh, during this period. Uh, they had begun to develop crops. You know, they had actually, in some cases, had um, several seasons of crops had already been developed and sold uh, largely to the federal government by the time the Civil War ended. But Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, Andrew Jackson becomes a president. And before the year has ended, he had completely reversed this policy. And he has instructed uh, the Freedmen's Bureau to retake that land, to displace these Black people, and to give the land back to the Confederates who had owned it formerly. At the same time, we have the Homestead Act of 1862, which provided 160-acre land grants to white Americans, including recent immigrants from Europe, um, now, these were lands in the western part of the country, land that had just recently been, you know, occupied by Native people, Indigenous people, um, who were then pushed onto reservations and killed. Um, but this was a way for the federal government to complete its colonial settler project and provide 160 acres of land grants uh, tax-free to white Americans. And, um, you know, we know from the research of colleague um, uh, Trina Shanks-Williams and Jennifer Mueller, both have done research in this area. One of them is focused on just the numbers of people who uh, benefited from the program and how many acres of land they received. And the other has looked at um, what people were able to do with this. this, What does it mean to to be given a a, a free gift, free equity from the federal government of this size? Um, so 1.5 million white households receive these land grants, and that translates to uh, 45 million individual whites who are currently still receiving the benefits of this single government policy. So think about it. You know, you've got 100, <coughs> excuse me, 160 acres of land that you can live on. You can lease it out. You can subdivide it um, if there's any wildlife or lumber on the land that's yours, you know, to to sell, to profit from. Uh, If there are any mineral rights on the land, that's yours. Um, We know the case, uh, uh, Jennifer Mueller uh, uh, instructed her students to 
kind of interrogate their own family's wealth positions and to look and see if there was a, a, a Homestead Act in their histories. And the students were incredibly skeptical. They'd never heard about this in their family's you know, story, their origin stories. And you know, the Homestead Act wasn't even something that they were particularly you know, um, knowledgeable about. But in fact, 25% of the white students discovered a Homestead Act land grant patent in their families. Um, in one instance, she had a class of about 150 students, 100 of them were uh, identified as white, 12 or 13 of them as black, uh, and the other, what's that, 38% as of color. And 25% um, of the white students had a Homestead Act in their past. None of the black students or the students of color. So it's very interesting, uh, an experiment that she ran. One of the incredible examples that she um, uh, learned about from her students, uh, a family that in 1880 received a land grant in the Panhandle of Texas. And they decided that they would lease the land. Um, and I think the, 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 you know, when, the, when the grandfather says, so these are grand students who are telling the story. When the grandfather died, his widow moved to Austin, Texas with her eight children so that they would have the opportunity to go to college, which they do, and they all graduate debt-free. They continue to lease this land. So the grandmother then passes and the eight children uh, you know, resolve that they will uh, continue to lease the land and they will split the, you know, the proceeds eight ways. Then in 1980, a full 100 years later, natural gas is discovered on the property. And it turns out to be the largest such deposit in that area. Um, and the first year alone, the revenues are over $100,000. And so I like to think it's like, you know, you're receiving a dividend check every month from the federal government. And the important thing though, is that this is a gift from the federal government that these white families were able to pass on to their children. And we know that wealth is accumulated. You know, certainly there are individuals who, you know, through dent of their own, you know, uh, achievement, uh, are able to um, make a significant amount of money in their lifetimes. But for the most part, wealth is something that's passed down and, uh, you know, it accumulates over the generations. And this is what white Americans have been able to do, because uh, we're now talking six, seven generations, you know, from these original um, Homestead Act land patents. And this is something black people could do. So, so first of all, black people only, you know, going to receive 40, like 40 acre grants. Whites are getting 160. So to begin with, it's four to one. And then black American descendants, uh, you know, the black, the black people who were recently emancipated don't get those land grants okay. at all. So this is what we're talking about. You know, wealth is, wealth is important. You know, wealth gives you a security. It gives you a cushion. It gives you the opportunity to have choice. Uh, I mean, think what it would have been like uh, if before the COVID uh, pandemic began, black people had already received reparations. You know, all the ways that they may have been able to protect themselves, um, you know, to have been living in, you know, houses uh, where they could socially distance, to have had a job that didn't require you to, um, you know, to be in an unsafe place where, you know, for many months, people didn't have access to the personal protective, you know, equipment that they needed uh, or the ability to um, pay for expensive medical care uh, or expensive legal counsel, um, you know, or to participate in the, the, um, the public 
you know, arena of, you know, voting and political politics and politics or supporting you know, politicians who, uh, who hew to their own, you know, their own views. Um, this is what black people have not had and that significant numbers of white Americans have had at least since 1862. Let me add that our key point here is the recipients of reparations should be the individuals who are descendants of the folks who were denied the 40 acres. That's the community that we're referring to when we talk about Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Uh, there's no doubt that there are more recent Black immigrants who have been subjected to atrocities in the United States. And, you know, obviously the police don't ask where you're from if you're Black. Um, but uh, on the other hand, these are uh, individuals who have chosen to come to the United States, uh, unlike the, uh, the ancestors of uh, Black Americans who are descendants of U.S. slavery, whose ancestors were brought here forcibly uh, in chains. Um, and we think there's something a little bit odd about the notion that individuals who voluntarily migrate to a racist country should receive reparations for the racism that they experience there. Um, one last point here is that we think that virtually all black people throughout the diaspora merit reparations, but not necessarily from the United States government. So for example, uh, the, uh, the government of Jamaica is now making a claim on the United Kingdom for reparations. And uh, they do not include Black Americans in that claim, uh, but nor should, nor should they. Uh, similarly, uh, the Congo is making a claim on Belgium for the atrocities that were exercised there and they don't include black Americans. Uh, and again, they should not. Uh, but similarly, I don't think there should be an expectation that black Americans should include other communities from the black diaspora in a claim that is being made on the United States government. Now, there may be legitimate claims that other groups might have on the United States government but it would be a distinct claim from the one that we've tried to advance in from here to equality. We, we, we say absolutely these claims should be, all these claims should be made, but they need to be made to the appropriate, the appropriate country. Um, and we also believe that there's nothing positive to be gained from lumping all these claims together. You know, when you look at the commissions around the world that have achieved reparations for specific communities, they were very, very precise in their description of who was being, uh, you know, who the eligible recipients were and why. Um, you know, in the case of Japanese Americans, for example, the U.S. government also, in addition to interning uh, imprisoning, you know, Japanese American citizens uh, in these internment camps during World War II, they also interned uh, Japanese uh, who were in Latin America, you know, Peruvians and Colombians, for example. And initially they were included in the redress uh, plan. But as they began to you know, talk to members of Congress, they realized that you know, this was probably not going to, to fly. And um, 
that they needed to, you know, set aside that community in order to get the bill passed. Uh, the hope was that eventually they would get back to them, which they did do uh, some years later. Um, they did not receive the same amount of reparations, but they did receive a formal apology. But similarly, we're saying, you know, the specificity really matters. And we're talking about Black people who are descended from the folks who were denied those 40-acre land grants at the end of the Civil War. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we're talking about uh, reparations uh, this evening. Uh, and uh, our discussion focuses on uh, a book, uh, here to, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And we have the outstanding authors of uh, that uh, exciting uh, treatise with us this evening, Professor uh, Sandy Darity uh, from uh, Duke uh, University and A. Kirsten Mullins, uh, who are experts uh, in this uh, area, but we're gonna have to take our break uh, right now want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, conclude uh, this uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to The Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us uh, this evening as we uh, continue this discussion about uh, reparations. This is a uh, discussion that has been going on for some time, and undoubtedly it will uh, continue and should continue. And uh, you are encouraged uh, to engage in further uh, research and discussion about uh, this, uh, this topic. Uh, Sandy had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, John Conyers, congressman from um, uh, Detroit, uh, early on had introduced legislation in the uh, U.S. Congress for a study commission uh, to uh, investigate, research this issue of uh, reparations and then to uh, uh, devise some plan uh, for uh, implementing uh, that. That uh, legislation has continued uh, to be introduced in Congress uh, each uh, each session, uh, and the uh, death of uh, John Conyers did not end that, uh, because uh, I think it was Maxine Waters uh, picked it up, and uh, it uh, continued and had uh, hearings for the first time in the uh, uh, U.S. Congress. And uh, Sandy, I believe you uh, testified 
before that uh, that uh, that committee. Um, can you talk about uh, the importance of uh, that uh, effort and what are your misgivings about the uh, creation of a um, reparation study commission as as envisioned by uh, HR 40? You know, this is pretty complicated because I actually did not give testimony in person at the hearing that was held on June 19, uh, 2019, right? uh, June 10th. And this is under Sheila Jackson-Lee's. Yeah. And, uh, but what I did do was submit written testimony, which went into the record, but I wasn't able to be there in person. And, uh, I, I'm not sure if things would have evolved somewhat differently had I been there in person. Uh, but I believe my my statement was the only one that actually talked about the content of the bill. Whereas I think all the other individuals who gave testimony uh, were either taking a thumbs up or a thumbs down position on the idea of reparations in and of itself. Um, the hearing technically was about the legislation, which was uh, HR 40, uh, legislation to form a study commission for reparations, but, uh, uh, but nobody else actually talked about the legislation itself. And so, uh, uh, you know, so we have reservations about that legislation, strong reservations, and I'm going to let Kirsten well, talk. Well, I was, was going to insert here, that. you know, we are of strong uh, belief that very few people have actually read H.R. 40, yeah. including our elected officials. Um, we have had several of them actually admit such to us. When we have pointed out problems with the bill, remember um, one in particular said, "How do you know all this?" And we said, "It's it's in the bill. <laughs> it's in the bill." Yeah. And this individual had signed the bill in the 1990s. Well, signed to as a sponsor, yeah. yeah. But at any rate, um, so the the difficulties we see with HR now HB 40 are both in two directions. They're, they're what's in the bill and what's not in the bill. So I'm going to focus on what's not there. Um, we think that a a plan, a true plan for operations needs to have two things, or the four things rather. So the four basic pillars of a true plan of reparations. First, it should identify who the eligible recipients of reparations are. And for us, this is black American descendants of US slavery. Uh, and the second criteria, individuals who have uh, for at least 12 years prior to the creation of a reparations program or um, the initiation of a study commission, self-identified as Black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro. So those two criteria for eligibility, neither of those are spelled out in H.R. 40. Uh, second, we believe that a major uh, tenet of, major goal of a reparations plan would be the elimination of the racial wealth gap. And as Sandy has said, we're talking about, you know, an average of $840,000 uh, per household, per black household, uh, or a total of about 11 to $12 trillion outlay from the federal government. That's not specific, uh, specifically spelled out in HR 40. Uh, the third thing for us would be 
direct payments. Uh, so both for symbolic and substantive reasons, um, the reparations plan must involve direct payments. Um, it could be trust accounts, it could be cash transfers, annuity accounts, you know, other types of assets uh, to be given to eligible recipients. You know, when you look at um, successful reparations programs around the world, direct payments was the strategy that they took. You know, they did not say, oh, we're going to put the money in scholarship funds or we're going to create a consortium of you know, organizations and they will decide or we'll create some trust authority and let them decide how the money's going to be spent. Um, you know, some people will say, well, you know, can we target the money for communities where black people live? Well, the difficulty there would be, this is where black people live right now. But with gentrification, you know, being, you know, the rapacious animal that it is, um, you know, it probably would be fewer than five years before those very black people were no longer in that community and white people were receiving the benefits of that reparations uh, fund. So, um, you know, we believe that direct payments to the eligible recipients is the way to go. And we kind of question, you know, why given that so many other reparations programs did elect a direct payments process, why when the, when the potential recipients are black Americans of US slavery, does someone else need to determine how those funds are spent? Um, you know, um, one very recent case was that of 9-11 where the victims were given direct payments. Um, Sandy Hook, the horrible massacre in the elementary school, uh, but you know, it took them some time to um, to make this decision, but ultimately they too um, elected to make direct payments to the families of those victims. And then lastly, the federal government must pay the debt, this 156 year old debt. Um, the federal government put all this in motion. Um, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, slavery was legal, um, you know, segregation was legal. That's true, uh, you know, but authority is, um, you know, authority is, um, how do we say that? It's, a, it's a, a framework that, you know, can be contested. You know, the federal government created this, this, this legal authority framework and the federal government can say, you know, yes, we did that, but that was wrong. And now we're going to own, uh, you know, own our actions and we're going to pay reparations to black Americans in of US slavery. The other reason why the federal government is the entity that must pay this debt is it's the only entity that can pay the debt. Um, $11, 12 trillion is not a trivial sum. Um, you know, there are a number of, you know, communities, but also states that are now, um, you know, establishing what they're calling reparations funds. California is one of those, New York is another. Um, but, you know, we've done some, you know, examination of the budgets of cities and states around the, uh, the country and combined, uh, the budgets would be about $3.1 trillion. Now we're talking about a debt of 11 or 12 trillion at, on the low end, which means that you know, if you took all of the budgets of all of the cities and all of the states in the country, uh, that $3.1 trillion per year, it would take them four years to retire this debt. And they'd have nothing to operate you know, their cities and states in the interim. So that's not, that's not likely to happen. The federal government is the only entity that can pay the debt. 
And they are the folks who that is the entity that should pay the debt because they are the culpable party. So where do we go from here, right? So there are problems with HB 40, and we don't even know if it's going to be signed into um, into legislation. Um, and, you know, we've got those that are incredibly critical and challenging critical race theory. And, you know, one can't understand why reparations are necessary without understanding the history. And it appears to me as though, it, you know, that part of this response to um, the presentation of accurate history may, it, it doesn't seem outside of the realm of possibility that the traction that reparations is getting is also fueling that and that that, you know, might be a way to, to try and um, slow the, the train on, on reparations. And so where do you, for those of us that, that want to see reparations paid and, and we want to see the progress continuing, where do we go from here and how do we address the inevitable argument that we know is coming because we already see it with the vitriol that's um, being, you know, targeted at uh, critical race theory? So I, I think that the, uh, the critique of critical race theory, which many of us who are trying to promote having an accurate history of the United States don't actually teach. Uh, you know, uh, I think that the, the attack on critical race theory comes out of the failure of the nation to do something that we describe in the book as deconfederatized. Uh, that not only does the attack on critical race theory emerge from uh, the, 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 the philosophical position that was taken by the Confederates, but also the attack on the nation's capital that took place on January 6th runs in a straight line from the Confederacy to the present moment. And so because the nation has never actually addressed the problem with celebrating and supporting the traitorous actions of the Confederacy, we are in a position where the ideas that animated the Confederacy still play a significant role in our daily lives today. So, uh, so I, I think we would say that deconfederatization is still a project that must be pursued in the United States. And that is a project that would be supportive of reparations for black American descendants of US slavery. And we talk uh, in the book about the importance of education and the need to have, you know, for at least three generations, uh, you know, curriculum that's accurate. Um, we don't know our history. Um, you know, we, we are confronted with individuals every day uh, you know, who will say, well, you know, my family wasn't involved in the slave trade. We had nothing to do with that. And, you know, we would say to them, have you, how do you know that? I mean, have you done any research? Um, you know, the, the numbers of white households that owned at least one black body is really high, especially in, um, you know, you're looking at, you know, a minimum of 22% for every single state. Uh, but when you're, when you're talking about Mississippi and, um, South Carolina, that number jumps to 55 and 57%. That's huge. Um, and then there are many individuals whose families, you know, did not, for those whose families did not 
own black people, um, they were working in support of the trade. Uh, they did business with the plantation owners, uh, policed black bodies, provided uh, for sale, you know, everything from clothing to shoes and barrels and ships and ship's masts, uh, or they produced, um, uh, you know, shackles. I mean, there's just a whole incredible network of goods. You know, the banking industry, uh, the insurance industry, all of these grew exponentially as a consequence of slavery. And the, the textile industry in yeah. the North, um, you know, cities that did not have textile mills, especially in places like New Hampshire and Connecticut, um, textile industries became the leading manufacturers for them, uh, you know, uh, uh, converting cotton into, you know, rugs and clothes and such. Um, you know, this built a world. You know, this was not a trivial, uh, not a sideline industry. Um, slavery basically was, was running the world. So this idea that, you know, our family does, wasn't involved and we don't have, um, you know, we don't have any um, connection is, is, is not true. Uh, and certainly there are white people who benefited from legal segregation in this country um, and from the kinds of, of atrocities that are being inflicted upon black people today. How, how likely is it that this uh, reparations campaign will succeed? Uh, we're not sure. Uh, <laughs> we decided, uh, you know, about 30 years ago that we were going to pursue this because it's the right thing to do, uh, regardless of the odds of success. So, you know, from our perspective, if you were in the United States in 1819, you might think that slavery might never come to an end, but that would not be a reason for not opposing slavery. And so uh, similarly, we think that, you know, regardless of what the odds are, this is the right thing to do. Uh, I will say that we don't expect that the current U.S. Congress would pass a reparations bill, uh, but that's part of the struggle is, is producing a Congress that would pass the legislation's bill, legislation for reparations. Uh, but we also think that we're in a more propitious moment than previous times in, uh, in modern American history. Uh, in the year 2000, it's estimated that about 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations. Uh, by 2018, that figure still was low, but considerably higher at about 16%. And the most recent polls that we've seen place that figure at, uh, in the vicinity of 30%. Uh, and and a, a near majority of millennials actually support reparations for Black Americans. And so uh, the momentum is moving in the right direction. And the question is whether or not we can sustain it. Mm -hmm. yeah. about it oh, I'm sorry, I was gonna say, if you think about it, um, you know, many people never thought that apartheid would fall. And certainly in 1840, there are many people who could not imagine an end to slavery. And, uh, you know, but there were people who were working all along to make those things happen. And we decided to join the, the chorus of people who were, you know, trying to 
uh, understand how a reparations program could be developed and designed and what we would need to do to make it happen. And thank you both for all of your hard work. This book is exceptional and uh, we can't recommend it enough um, to young people, to old people, to our legislators. Um, you know, ev everyone needs to read this book because without understanding the history and it is incredibly well-researched, you, you can't fully appreciate why we are where we are. And in order to sustain the momentum, it requires knowledge and education. And, and again, I think that's one of the reasons why you see uh, such fierce opposition to educating about the realities of this country's history. Hmm. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we want to thank our wonderful guest, Sandy Darity. He is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African-American Studies and Economics at Duke University. Kirsten Mullins, who is a writer, folklorist, and lecturer, and they are the authors of this fabulous book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. So again, we encourage you to pick up multiple copies, read them, share them, have book club discussions, um, and let's keep this momentum going. We'd also like to thank, of course, our listening audience for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, Stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.